0: You know, we live in a uh, world filled with all types of symbols and perhaps you recognize some of these. You know what the uh, golden arches represent, of course. The swoosh from Nike, and beneath the golden arches you see the hammer and sickle, something that's been around for uh, a little while representing Marxism adopted by Soviet Russia in 1917. Next to that is a, a symbol that actually it's been around for for thousands of years, but it was uh, co-opted by the Nazis in uh, Nazi Germany and by Hitler in uh, this last century. And the Nazis forever ruined what, uh, what used to be a, a symbol that had very different meaning. But now, of course, we associate the swastika with hatred and Uh, with brutality, and uh, Hitler ruined that, sort of like he ruined the short mustache for men. You don't see any any men with a short mustache anymore. He ruined that too. You know, we have religious symbols in the world today. Some of these you may recognize, such as the crescent and star. Uh, In a lot of places in the Islamic world, it represents Islam, but it's not quite universal. And then the Star of David. Uh, this last century, that became representative of, of course, the nation of Israel, but also, in, a, in some senses, a uh, representation of Judaism itself. But you know, when it comes to Christianity, the earliest symbols included some things you might not have thought about. A peacock was one of the earliest symbols of Christianity. And the picture on the screen is a picture of an actual mosaic. A tile mosaic, an ancient tile mosaic that represented Christianity. You know, you might be thinking, okay, why, why peacock? I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, the peacock is sort of representative of eternal life. And the reason is peacocks apparently have real tough skin. They don't decompose very easily. And so they, the skin lasts a long time. And so that sort of represents eternal life. And when they lose a feather, a new feather grows in its place. And then you see at the back of the peacock, uh, if you ever saw a, a peacock up close, you'd see what looks like on its feathers a lot of eyes. It's the way God designed it. Well, the eyes are thought to have represented maybe the eyes of God. And so for some early Christians, they adopted the peacock as a symbol of their faith. And next to that, of course, you see the, uh, a dove, which is... A little bit more directly biblical, uh, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove. And so uh, for some Christians it was the dove and then palm branches representing victory. Um, and the victory, victorious king of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and people waving palm branches. And then uh, more famously we have the Jesus fish as it's sometimes known. And the Jesus fish, why, and people wonder why is that a representation of Christianity? Well... The, the Jesus fish, the, the Greek word for fish is the word ichthus, and it's uh, spelled with five different letters, an iota, a chi, a theta, a an Epsilon, and a sigma. Those five letters can make an acrostic. In other words, the letter iota, one word that starts with the letter iota is iesus, which we would say is Jesus. A, letter, a word that begins with the letter chi is Christos, meaning Christ. A word that begins with the letter theta is Theos, meaning God. A word that begins with the letter upsilon is Wios, meaning Son. And a word that begins with the letter sigma is Soter. Soteriology is the study of salvation. Soter means Savior. And so the fish represented those five words in that order. Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. And a lot of ancient Christians, when persecution was widespread, they might be talking to a stranger that they didn't know, and they've been down, and in maybe in the, in the soil, or maybe on a wall nearby, with their finger, they would, they would make an arch. And if the person they were talking to responded by completing the Jesus fish, if you will, by making an inverted arch, they would know, I'm talking with another believer in the Lord. And they could sort of uh, wink and nod and maybe have a discussion about the Lord. But it, there were times when it was not prudent to talk openly about the Lord, lest you get yourself in great trouble. But, you know, none of those symbols that we just talked about became universally used by Christians. The symbol that became most widely used, even universally used, of course, and this was it became universally used in the 2nd century A.D., it was the cross. The cross represents Christianity. And when you think about it, the cross is a very interesting and really unusual choice to represent Christianity. Because at the time, in the Roman world, the cross was a symbol of execution. And to the Romans who ruled the world, that's who Jesus was. He was a criminal who needed to be executed. And so the cross was really a symbol of criminality. It was a symbol of guilt. It was a symbol of shame. It was a symbol of death. And so what kind of self-respecting religion would use something like that to represent their faith? Can you imagine today someone using instead of the cross, someone using as a symbol of their faith the hangman's noose? Or someone using an electric chair to represent their faith. Or maybe someone to use a symbol of a firing squad to represent their faith. I mean, that would really be pretty outlandish. And it was sort of outlandish for those early Christians in the second century to finally adopt the cross as representation of their faith. And so why? Why would they represent their faith by a symbol that And that day represented a hangman's noose or an electric chair or a firing squad. And the reason that they chose to do that, the symbol of the cross, it became important for them because the meaning of the cross was important to them. Today we're beginning a new series simply called The Cross. And we live in a Society, We live at a time that diminishes the importance and the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ. To be clear, when we're talking about the cross, we're not just talking about two pieces of wood fixed together, bound together, in order for some criminal to be placed upon it and have nails driven through their hands and feet and to be left by publicly exposed Until they died We're not just talking about That specific piece Or pieces of wood We're talking about the significance The meaning of the death of Jesus Christ And how it applies To you and me And even many churches today Have eliminated Or at least greatly diminished The the cross They don't talk about the cross as much As churches used to A lot of churches have simply become nothing more than a self-help group, a religious self-help group. And it's good, I would say, to talk about marriage and parenting and money management and, and all types of different things that the Bible, the Bible talks about all these things. But we must never leave out the most central thing, which is the cross of Jesus Christ, You know, people today have a tendency, and I'm talking about lost people, people at large, have a tendency to love Jesus, but not the cross. The Doobie Brothers, you remember the Doobie Brothers? They had a song called Jesus is Just Alright. And I'm not going to criticize the Doobie Brothers. I like a lot of their music. Their name leaves a little something to be desired, you know. But I like a lot of their music, and I'm not going to criticize them for having a shallow understanding of who Jesus is. A lot of people have a shallow understanding of who Jesus is. They think Jesus is a guy who, hey, he's, he stood up to the man. You know, he spoke truth to power. He, he stood up for the little guy. He, he fed people. He helped people. He healed people. Jesus is a cool guy that I'd like to hang out with. That's the idea. That, that people have of Jesus. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to be around Jesus. Christians, not so much, but Jesus, hey, he sounds like a cool guy. You know, but if that's all your understanding of Jesus is, if you're leaving the cross out, you're leaving out the most central thing, not only about Jesus, but the most central thing to Jesus. Jesus centered his entire life on the cross. People like to leave the cross out because the cross can be offensive. It always has been offensive, and it always will be offensive to talk about the cross. Because when you're talking about putting an innocent man on the cross and telling people the reason that he died on the cross is because you're bad, people don't want to hear that. Whoa, wait a minute. You're saying, I'm bad? I'm the reason this guy died on a cross? Back off. I might might like the Jesus without the cross. And so a lot of people choose the Jesus without the cross. But that's insufficient. It's not the whole story of Jesus. Everything in Jesus' life led straight to the cross. Why? Because Jesus centered his life on doing God's will. Doing the will of his father. The central driving force of Jesus' life was to do his father's will. By the way, Christian, the central driving force of your life ought to be the same. To do your heavenly father's will. You know, everyone has a central focus. Everyone has a driving force in their life. A lot of people never identify what it is. They just sort of get up, go to work, make some money, go home, eat, sleep, repeat, and that's it. And they really don't have a, an idea of why they're doing all of that. Maybe they try to find some meaning in, in their relationships with other people, but it's not really a central, knowledgeable driving force that they can, uh, that they can ascertain, that they can speak of. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. He spoke repeatedly about doing his father's will. His food, he said, was to do the will of his father in heaven. You have the ability to choose what your driving force will be, because God made you in his image and being made in the image of God. It includes the possibility of making free choices. You have the choice every single day that you wake up, to choose to do your Father's will. So I hope you know what your purpose in life is. Jesus did. He knew what his purpose in life was. Jesus knew even from an early age that his whole life would be about one thing, doing his Father's will. You remember the story when Jesus was 12 years old, his parents and he lived in uh, Nazareth, way up north, about 75, 75 miles north of Jerusalem or so. And they traveled all the way to Jerusalem to worship, to worship God uh, during one of the festivals. And so they were there for a while. And then the whole traveling party, not just Jesus' parents, but there was a big traveling party from Nazareth. They all went back to Nazareth except for one person. Jesus stayed behind And at first it was no big deal because Jesus has to be around here somewhere. I'm sure he's with somebody. And they looked for him. him. It took Mary and Joseph a whole day before they realized that their son was not in the traveling party. So they went back to Jerusalem. And they spent three days going up and down the streets looking for Jesus. And they finally found him in the temple. Jesus was in the temple... He was listening to the rabbis and even teaching the rabbis at age 12. And the Bible says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? I think she might have been more animated than I just read it. (laughs) If it was me, my mom would be saying things like that while she was beating me. But, She said, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus replied, Why? Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? As a 12-year-old, Jesus knew his purpose in life. To be about his father's business. He had to do His Father's will. Now, if you were to travel through Mark's Gospel in your reading of Scripture, you would discover that Jesus spent about three years with His disciples. And during these first three years, He was hoping and trying to get them to understand that they would figure out who He was. They need to figure out who he was. And finally, in Mark chapter 8, they figured it out. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They finally figured it out after about three years. And immediately, after Peter and the disciples figured out who Jesus was, it is only then that Jesus told them of God's plans, of the Father's plans for him. And Jesus began making his way directly to Jerusalem. Here's the first statement that Jesus made of his Father's plan after the disciples figured out who he was. Mark 8, 31 and 32. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. It's only after they figured out who he was that he began to tell them what he was called to do. In the next chapter of Mark's Gospel, Jesus says something very similar. In Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and th- through 32, it says, Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Then later, as they continued to make their way to Jerusalem, we read this in Mark 10. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. By this time, the disciples were beside themselves. They're like, why is he going to Jerusalem? He's going to get himself killed. They don't like him there. The religious leaders don't like him there. Why is he going straight to Jerusalem? He will get himself killed, and Jesus is saying, yes, that's the point. I have a date. There's something on the calendar that I have to attend to. So Jesus is walking ahead of them, going up to Jerusalem. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him... We're afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. You see, Jesus, when He died on the cross, it was not simply because He was a helpless victim of some cruel, tyrannical government. When He died on the cross, it was not simply because religious forces allied against Him. But rather, He died on the cross because He fully embraced His Father's plan for Him. He embraced God's purpose for his life. God the Father planned for God the Son to die on a cross. But why? Why would the Father want the Son to die on a cross? It was to save sinners like me. And like you. That's why. You see, for you and me to be saved, Jesus needed to go to the cross. He needed to accomplish the Father's will. The cross was central to every part of his life. And not only was the cross central to Jesus' life, But the cross was central to his followers' lives as well. The apostles, after Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the grave, and he taught them some more and then ascended to heaven, the apostles had the same purpose as Jesus, to do their Father's will. That means that the cross of Jesus had to remain central to them And to the work that God had called them to do. In the book of Acts, we run across a number of sermons. And I want to... We're not going to read them all, but I'm going to read an excerpt from a number of them. Just a couple of verses. I want you to see if there's a common thread that you can pick up on. First, there's Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter said... Though he was delivered up according to the determined plan and foreknow- according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. In Acts chapter three, Peter preaches in the temple precinct. Here's a part of what he said. You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. In Acts chapter 4, Peter stands before the ruling class, the Sanhedrin. And he says this in Acts 4, 9. If we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel... That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. Then Peter had to stand before the Sanhedrin a second time in Acts chapter 5. Listen to what he said. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to the right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Later, Peter goes to Cornelius, a Gentile who needs to know about Jesus. Peter said, we ourselves are witnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean country and in Jerusalem, and yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen. Repeatedly, over and over again, in every sermon Peter preached, he included the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then Paul, when Paul preached to Jews in the synagogue at Poseidon Antioch, this is what he said, When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Then Paul preached to Jews at Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. Paul said, or it says, As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Listen. If... The cross was central to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we follow. And if the cross was central to the apostles, who were the first followers of Christ, the cross needs to be central to our lives as well. We must always be aware that our relationship with God, the God who has promised to never leave us or forsake us, Our relationship with God is based on this fact that the Lord Jesus died on a cross and he was buried and he was raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul put it this way in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2 verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him. Crucified. Christian, when you think about your Lord and Savior, you cannot intentionally disassociate him from the cross. We cannot pick and choose what kind of Jesus we want to worship. Don't be guilty of trying to make Jesus in your own image. That would be a terrible crime against God. And when we talk to others about our Lord and Savior, we cannot conveniently leave the cross out. The Jesus you share with your loved ones must be the Jesus that died on the cross and rose from the grave. It is that central. Now here's a very important question. How? Can we keep the cross of Christ in the forefront of our minds? And I think it's a great question. And I want to give you one way that we can keep our focus on the cross of Christ. And it is by returning to a very specific practice of first century Christians. This very specific practice was instituted by Jesus himself just hours before his crucifixion the Lord Jesus commanded His disciples to remember and proclaim His death through certain symbols. The symbol of the bread and the symbol of the cup. We call this the Lord's Supper. Jesus commanded us to partake of the Lord's Supper on a regular basis until He comes. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six, 26, we read, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes back. Question, how often is regularly? How often should we partake of the Lord's Supper? Now, to be sure, there's no specific, explicit command in the Bible that says that we are partake of the Lord's Supper every year or every quarter, or every month, or every week. There's nothing that says this is how often you should do it. But what we do have in the Bible, we do have an indication of how often the early church did it. They partook of the Lord's Supper every week. The early church partook of the Lord's Supper every time the entire Church body gathered to worship the Lord. I'll show you. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We know, we know that the other three activities listed in that verse were done every single time they came together. Why not the fourth? Why not also the Lord's Supper? In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it begins this way. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. It should say break bread, not bread bread. (laughs) On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. It was just understood. This is what we do every week when we gather. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, which talks about the Lord's Supper, Paul rebukes the Corinthian church because they were so divided. And they were were not acting proper at all. And he says to them, and part of what he says to them is this, in verses 20 and 21 of 1 Corinthians 11, When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, that's why we come together, to eat the Lord's Supper. But when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another is drunk. Wouldn't that be a fun church to be in? Listen, the Lord's Supper is not simply an empty tradition. The Lord's Supper is a joyous, thankful reminder to keep our focus on Christ and the cross. To keep our focus on His saving work on that cross the more often that you partake of the Lord's Supper when gathered with God's people, the more you will be reminded to keep the cross of Christ central to your life. I don't ever want us, as a church, to become some type of religious self-help club. Churches like that diminish the saving work of Christ on the cross. There is a time to talk about marriage and parenting and money management and government and character development. The Bible talks about all of those things. But you know what? None of those things will in themselves save a person. It is the message of the cross and resurrection of Jesus that once believed will transfer a person From the kingdom of sin and death and hell into the kingdom of God. And that is the transfer, that spiritual transfer from the one kingdom into another kingdom that must happen in each of our lives. Eternal salvation only comes through the cross. Now, In order for us as a church to remain even more focused on the cross than maybe you already are, we're going to follow the example of the early church. Each week, we're going to make the elements of the Lord's Supper available to you on the two tables in the back of the worship center. You'll have the option to retrieve and then partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper during the worship service as the Holy Spirit leads you. Lord Jesus, we've done as you've commanded. And Father, I pray that you keep us ever mindful of the sacrifice your Son gave on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.